Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So I think there's a question that we all ask at some point in our lives. For many of us, I think this question uh, may actually uh, be a driving force in our lives uh, to a significant extent. It's the question, how can I be happy? Uh, this is a question that actually Jesus addresses in, in one of his longest sermons we have recorded, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're all looking for happiness, so, so what makes you happy? What makes you happy? Is it finishing school? Is it getting a, that degree, getting a job promotion? Is it getting a girlfriend or a boyfriend, having a child, having grandkids, going on a vacation, being healthy, making money? Is it happiness deprived this fall because the Buckeyes aren't playing and you really like watching them winning? What is it? Whatever it is, generally, the older we get, I think we tend to realize more and more that happiness is not found in what we get. Actor Jim Carrey once said it this way, he said, I, I wish everyone would get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they would know that that's not the answer. It's not the answer. It still doesn't fill us up enough. It doesn't answer the question. Actor and comedian Russell Brand insightfully reflected on his right saying that life saying that drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality's my problem, he said. He said, Drug and, drugs and alcohol are my solution to fill up a hole inside of me. Now, he, he admits that that's not a good solution, but for him, nonetheless, it was his attempt to deal with the emptiness and unhappiness of life. Today, we look at Jesus' poetic opening introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. They speak to this very longing for us to have a full and happy life. They're actually named the Beatitudes because this word actually means blessed or happy. Each Beatitude begins with this phrase, blessed are, and then it goes on to describe some stuff. Yet this word blessed in the, in the original Greek in which it was written means more than happy. Blessed also means to be prosperous, to be fortunate, to be well spoken of. It actually, the Greek word actually makes it into our language as eulogy or eulogize. Our word happiness just doesn't do justice to this word blessed. Happiness comes from the root word hap, which means by chance. Without God, happiness comes by chance. But what Jesus is describing here in the Beatitudes is a blessedness, a joy that is untouchable, it's unstoppable that comes from him. So unlike the temporary happiness that can come from stuff and money, Jesus is describing blessings that are not weak, not fickle, not temporary, not unsure. He's describing blessings that come from his love for us as his children being a part of his kingdom. So let's actually read what I think for many of us are familiar words. And at first I can think we can view these words as a little bit benign or maybe simple, like when you first step into a pool. But as we get a little bit more into it and we start talking about poor in spirit and what that means and meek and what it means, it, we kind of feel like we're waist deep. And then when we get to the part of the Beatitudes that talk about crying a lot and those who get beaten, beaten up or blessed, we start going, what? And we feel like we're 12 feet deep when way over our heads in it. These blessings, if we listen have the potential to turn upside down our view of God and ourselves and others and how we solve society's problems. Matthew 5. Seeing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall actually inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we all think, yeah, blessed, right? He says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So for a Jewish prophet or rabbi like Jesus to go around announcing that certain kinds of people would be blessed was not uncommon. It was actually a kind of a literary form that we see in the Old Testament and a lot of the teachers of the day. We see it in Psalm 1-1 where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We also see another teacher, actually, who was before our Jesus' time. His name is Jesus ben Sirach. I don't know if that's where Sirach's sauce came from, but it's spelled kind of similar. Who said things like, blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife. I mean, okay, right? When Jesus starts to share these beatitudes to the crowd, this form of speaking would have been familiar to them. But Jesus flips everything. In these often counterintuitive statements, he flips everything everything. It's why many describe the kingdom of God that Jesus preached as an upside-down kingdom. So, see, we wouldn't put these words together like Jesus, would we? I mean, if we were to say these words, we'd say, blessed are the rich, blessed are the famous, blessed are those who get what they want, blessed are the Buckeyes when they win, and never blessed are the Wolverines, right? We'd say those kinds of things. It's important to note the Beatitudes are not saying People who are rich and powerful and influential are not part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that you need to be poor, you need to mourn, you need to be persecuted in order to be blessed by God. The Beatitudes are not indications of who will be on the top of the social rung of the kingdom, but rather explanations or illustrations of how we enter into the kingdom of God that is made available to everyone through personal relationship with God in the here and now. Last week we talked about Jesus' first words of his public ministry. They were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was declaring the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God used interchangeably in the New Testament is here among us, present, intervening in our reality right now. We see Jesus demonstrating this by meeting the desperate needs of people all around him. The next verses after Jesus says those first words, we see him healing the sick, the paralyzed, uh, being healed, and people coming from as far away as Syria and whatever illness, pain, or demon possession they had, Jesus healed them all. Enormous crowds followed him wherever he went. So after ministering the needs of the people crowding around him, Jesus goes up on this hill, this mountain, this kind of natural amphitheater, and he begins to teach. And he he doesn't teach them instructions, but rather statements of how they can actually receive the kingdom of God that is here. And when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is for them, he can actually show them someone who he just touched and healed by the power of that very kingdom. It's amazing. Each beatitude is not to be read as 
kind of a one-time wise blurb to philosophically ponder like the Proverbs of Confucius, but rather they are the underpinning foundations of what it means to live in Jesus' kingdom. In fact, the Beatitudes, interestingly enough, are Jesus' main points to his whole sermon, which for whatever reason he gives them to us first. And then the entire rest of his Sermon on the Mount illustrates what these mean. We're going to look more at it next week as well. Let's imagine for a minute, though, what it would have been like for us to be part of the crowd on the mountainside listening to Jesus. It would have been a large variety of people from all over, many of them from the margins of society. I mean, Jesus attracted the sick, the poor, the needy. And remember, Roman culture wasn't like ours today where we have food stamps and welfare. Many people lived as day-to-day laborers, subsistence living that would make most of the poor in America look wealthy compared to them. That was kind of the common experience of many of them. To all of them, Jesus gives these blessings, and I think they would have been received with just kind of this electric buzz of energy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This first blessing is the key to all the other blessings falling in place in the Beatitudes. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? The word poor refers to not, being, not, not necessarily being monetarily rich or poor, although it can include that. It really refers to this sense of dependency or a recognition of our need. Being poor in spirit has many different things, but I think we can isolate three main truths we'll talk about today. First, we need God, and, and the reality is we can't earn the kingdom on our own efforts. See, the poor in spirit are blessed because the kingdom of God is available to those who recognize they desperately need God's salvation. They can't fix themselves. They are in utter need of God's help and power. Second, you know you don't have sufficient resources in yourself to face life's challenges. Therefore, you embrace God daily for all that you need. I actually like the way two other versions of the Bible say this verse. One is the message that says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Another one says it this way, happy are those who know their need for God. See, the kingdom of heaven breaks into our reality when we recognize how in need of God's rule in our life we really are, how we need his forgiveness, how we need his grace, how we need his strength, how our wisdom isn't enough, how we absolutely, desperately need his wisdom. See, I think most of us have spent most of our lives, I know I have, trying to become anything but poor or dependent. We often want to be self-sufficient and feel like we have things under control so that we won't be afraid of the future. However, that whole idea cuts against God's help. It cuts us off from God's help from a relationship with Him. Tim Geller describes it this way. He says, many of us tend to live life with a middle-class spirit where we think we're capable enough, and if we just work hard enough, we can achieve things on our own. See, when we apply that kind of thinking to faith and religion, the church and the gospel, trying to do it on our own, it leads us to this dangerous, self-hypocritical, religious type of experience. We can think that through our hard work, God owes us and should answer our prayers, but when we rely on our good deeds for our worth, it can lead us to this feeling of being superior, right, toward others, which is what most people hate about religious people. Which leads us to the third critical tooth about being 
poor in spirit. Poor in spirit affects how we see others. And it actually leads us to compassion, which is what drove everything about Jesus on earth. Jesus applies poor in spirit later in his sermon when he talks to us about how we tend to compare ourselves to others. The way Jesus does it, he says, so you think you are better than the murderer, but I say to you, even if if you hate someone in your heart, you are already guilty of murder. And he says the same thing about adultery. He says, if you just lust in your heart after someone, even if you haven't acted on them, you have already committed a murder. So, so think about it. What's, is Jesus just trying to make us feel Ill, Ill, guilty? I, I don't think so. There's a point that Jesus is making in applying poor in spirit in this way. See, part of being poor in spirit is not recognizing, not only recognizing how much need you have, but how in need others are, just like you. There's identification happening here. Compassion being stirred. Jesus in this beatitude is leading us to a place of breaking down walls between us and others and helping us discover compassion for one another in our sin and brokenness. Making room for his kingdom power and grace to enter in, not just to save us, but to work through us to save others as well. In order for that to happen, we need to compassionately identify with other people and see them like we see ourselves. To sum up this beatitude, I'd like for you to imagine uh, what it would be like for somebody today sitting in the crowd and Jesus sharing these words. Imagine maybe a dad sitting here and Jesus is talking and this dad has three kids and he's lost his job this last year. He keeps sending out resumes and no responses and the food stamps and the unemployment are running out. They can't meet the mortgage payments and the other bills and he's desperate. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's feeling like the insides of him are just crushing in on him and imagine he's there sitting, listening and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these words say to him, you mean God is really for me in this moment? His power is going to be for me, and it speaks to the hopelessness. God speaks to hope at the depth of the being of letting him know somehow God is going to give him strength to get through this because the kingdom of God is here now for him. Our next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus is inviting us in this to deal with pain in a different way. So, so how do you deal with pain as a, normal, as a normal course of affairs in your life? Do you avoid it, numb it, forget, distract, move on? How do you deal with it? Jesus says here that if you want to experience God's presence breaking into your reality in a powerful, comforting way, don't ignore pain. Don't run from it. Press into it with God. Mourn it with God. God. Recognize the consequences of the pain of your sin and other people's sin that you are experiencing with God. Because only then do you discover God's comforting love. See, when I think of comfort, I think of comfort food. I think of a chair, bed, clothes, things that soothe me. But this word translated here, comfort, is actually the word parakaleo in Greek. It's the exact same word used in the rest of the Gospels to describe the Spirit of God coming to us. 
Jesus is saying to us, I, God, want to be with you in your sorrow. Me, my power, my spirit wants to come to you in your pain. Jesus is saying, I want to be the rock for you when everything in your world is shaking, changing, and is upset. See, this invitation to mourn is an invitation to a personal encounter with God, the King. And isn't the idea of God's comfort for us at least partially the fact that He already knows your sin? He already knows your pain, and He loves you, even in the midst of that, and promises to resolve all pain and sin one day, Maybe not now, but one day it will all be resolved. So why do we push him away when we experience sin and when we experience pain? Turn to God instead. So, so, so what do we mourn? Well, we kind of already alluded to it. Poor in spirit already led us, leads us to the idea that we mourn our sin. We mourn the sin of other people that, and how the pain that's caused pain for us. We mourn the general pain that living in a broken world that is, that is brought on by sin brings us in terms of death and loss and, and setbacks in life that were never intended to be part of life. Poor in spirit recognizes our need, whereas mourning is actually responding to that recognition with actively turning toward God. I mean, how often in pain and disappointment do we push God away rather than turn him. We get angry and push him away. Mourning is the spiritual practice of turning toward God with our pain, our disappointment, and repenting, turning toward him even when we sin. Further, if we don't mourn the sin done to us, it's going to have drastic negative consequences in our lives because we will carry that sin and that pain into many of our relationships in our life. Over time, that sin and pain will end up building up, gradually resulting in our hearts and our attitudes becoming just a little bit harder, and eventually there'll be a little bit of a kind of deadness to us in places that we used to feel more alive in. See, mourning that sin that is done to us is like exfoliating dead, dry skin. It's getting rid of the deadness and the hardness of our hearts and our lives. It's, it's the spiritual habit that doesn't allow things to build up and harden us. It's turning toward God with our pain and our sin. But mourning isn't just a selfish interest, self-care thing. It's also part of being his church, his representative in the world. It's, it's being relational, opening our hearts to those around us who are in pain, helping carry one another's burdens. It's the, one of the rais- main reasons we state our mission as a relationship is the mission. We get together, we serve God, and we join with one another to help encourage each other and come alongside of each other in the difficulties and in the good times of life. So blessed are those who mourn looks like, may even look like, blessed are those who open their lives to other people. Blessed are those who take on kids whose parents can't care for them well enough and care for them, who volunteer with our kids or youth, realizing it takes a village to raise kids, listening to those who are of different racial or gender or economic groups to understand their pain, their struggles, their fear. Jesus goes on and says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now this meek word in English comes across like a phrase that was used when I was growing up. I was surprised somebody in the first service actually grew up hearing this phrase. The phrase that I always heard growing up was, don't be such a milk toast person. Anybody ever heard that? 
Anybody? Maybe it's just a, I thought it was just a southern Minnesota type of thing. that. Anybody? So the image is bread soaked in milk. You ever seen bread soaked in milk? It's, it's floppy, it's soggy, it crumbles at the slightest movement or pressure. It's just weak. And it doesn't really taste good. But that's not all what meek means. Meek does not mean weakness. Meekness literally means controlled strength. The Greek word used here for meek in furs is often used to infer domesticated animals. It's not talking about wild or untamed animals. It's like a horse that has been trained to serve powerfully, gently, and effectively. How do we become meek? Well, meek is the is the fruit of standing confidently in the knowledge that you are loved by God and the grace of God is more than sufficient for anything in your life. Meekness can look like actually boldness because you trust God, your Lord is doing things through you even if you can't see it, you trust his power to be at work. So meekness is seen in Jesus standing before Pilate and that whole interaction, you read that later today. It's Paul before King Agrippa in Acts. It's, it's Moses before Pharaoh in the Old Testament. It is you being able to be powerful and clear in conflict with your spouse or your boss or somebody else while also at the same time being compassionate and gentle in that moment. Meekness is the fruit of standing confidently in the love and grace of God in your life. A meekness can also look like taking second place instead of, uh, instead of first place in order to serve others. It can mean leveraging your power to serve and raise others up. We see it in Jesus leveraging his power to forgive and rescue a woman caught in adultery. How can we be meek in today's conflicted culture? Our culture totally lacks this concept and is blowing itself up. Next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We could also say it like this. Blessed are those who have spiritual hunger, who crave a relationship with God above everything else, who have this deep longing for him to bring wholeness to life, for, those, for, for they will be satisfied. Spiritual hunger and thirst is a desire to know and do what is right in life, to see things in life be made right. This is really challenging for us today. There's so much of this going on, a desire to see wrongs made right. But these desires can so easily go astray in how we should go about getting them done. And they have so drastically in our culture today. This beatitude is encouraging us to keep hungering and thirsting for righteousness, even when things don't look like they're going in that direction. Jesus is promising hunger for right will be satisfied. But what I think we often miss in this beatitude is this. Jesus is also highlighting the need for us as spiritual people following him that we need to be okay living in the tension of that hunger not yet fulfilled. I mean, how often... When the answer from God that we need doesn't come, do you push God away and become angry and distant rather than staying hungry and pursuing God? See, the reality of this world is that there will always be hunger and thirst for things to be made right that will not be yet fully made right because we live in a broken world. 
So can we trust God even in our hunger, not yet satisfied? Because when we do, he says he will bring his kingdom and he will satisfy that hunger at some point. If you stay strong, you stay thirsty, you stay hungry, righteousness will come. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of the implications of this next week as we, Jesus, as we talk more about how Jesus illustrates these in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's move on. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So this doesn't mean to feel sorry for someone. Mercy means attempting to see things from another's perspective and understand their experience of life and to do that with gracious kindness, just like Jesus did and does for us. And because we've received God's mercy, we can give mercy to others. And when we give mercy to others, we will receive mercy mercy from others. In other words, Jesus is inviting us into this loop of life where we give and receive. We give and receive over and over again his gracious kindness in the way that we live. This is so different, again, than what's being expressed in our cultures today of how we should solve the problems we're facing. So next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The first thing this beatitude shows us is God is concerned with our hearts. He's not just focused on changing our behavior, cleaning up our acts. He's, the heart is utterly crucial to Jesus. What we are deep down in our private recesses of our lives is what Jesus cares about most. So when David actually talks about this idea of a pure heart in the Psalms, he also adds something more to it because he adds this this idea of a singleness of focus even as much as being honest. Honest is part of it, but there's this singleness of focus. David says for those who have this singleness of focus and have seen God and experienced God in in this way, there's nothing better in life. See, we desire, I think, to not sin. I think most of us would desire to never fail again in our lives, right? Because sin is like mud hitting our windshield and when the wipers are broken, making it really hard for us to hear or see God. The exciting part of seeing God clearly is that we get to see what he's doing And we get to join him in doing what he's doing to bring goodness and happiness and peace to people's life and order to people's life, which actually leads us to the next beatitude, which is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peace that's talked about here refers to the Hebrew idea of shalom. It's speaking about a flourishing wholeness where natural needs are satisfied under God's love. Things are rightly working together to bring blessing to all areas of life. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Now, being a peacemaker doesn't mean peace at any cost. Being a peacemaker doesn't mean there is an absence of anxiety in the midst of conflict. Peacemakers don't create a false sense of peace by saying and doing nothing. So, for example, maybe you get together with family, extended family, and somebody makes a big scene really offending other people and criticizing someone, and, and no one in your family says anything about it. Now, maybe it's okay not to say anything about it in that moment, but if you never say anything about it, what's the motive for you in staying quiet? Is it to avoid unearthing things you just don't want to deal with? See, peacemakers, true peacemakers, challenge false peace. 
which means they confront things. They bring things and conflict out in the open so it can be dealt with. When you read Jesus, you're going to see that he doesn't have a problem at all disrupting the false peace going on around him. Which leads us to the final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Isn't that an amazing picture that God wants to lead us through these beatitudes to a place where we are so strong that we can actually even rejoice in the midst of that kind of conflict? Don't you want to be that strong? Don't you want to have that solid sense of confidence to live there? Living life from the kingdom of God perspective will place us in conflict automatically with those who oppose it or those who simply don't understand it. Standing up for, for what is right will, can and will lead to consequences so many times. So imagine maybe a teenager who notices a classmate getting verbally and physically picked on and a bunch of bullies are trying to go back, push him out back and he, nothing good's going to happen and he intervenes and even though he only responds with self-defense just as the principal rounds the corner, they start throwing punches and he, along with all of them, gets suspended. And he thinks, man, my parents are going to be angry at me. But then he has a friend who tells tells his parents what happened, and his parents are proud of him for standing up for someone. Imagine that teen hearing Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For that teenager to know the pleasure of God is with them for standing up for right even when it's difficult. As we close today, think again about the words, uh, about these words and realize that Jesus, Jesus is the only one who has ever lived the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes. He's fulfilled every single Beatitude, securing the right to give us every blessing that the Beatitudes talk about. Worship team, come on. As we end today, let's touch back on the original question. What makes you happy? What makes you happy? According to Jesus, in these Beatitudes, happiness is not a set of circumstances. Rather, it's the result of a right relationship with God. And this relationship isn't built on your works or your circumstances. True happiness and joy in life can only be the result of being rightly related to God and living in the kind of confidence that his love and his acceptance and his grace of you gives you. I'm actually reminded of Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, what he admitted before he died. He's, he said in an interview, he said, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man. And that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. And Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one relationship that will and can satisfy the deepest longings of your life. Would you stand with me as we pray? So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come and continue to come among us now. 
Lord, your word says that the comfort you bring is very personal, that you want to come to each and every one of us. So wherever we're at today, whether we walked in here feeling guilty or walked or sat down and listened online and feeling guilty about what we did last night, would you just, would you just come as we turn to you and repent and wash over us that we would know your comfort and your presence, that we would know how much you love us, how much you accept us right where we were at, and also how much you want to grow us beyond where we're at. Lord, would you help us experience your kingdom and walk in the power of your kingdom so that we, too, can be people who bring peace wherever we go, that we, too, can be people that even in the face of difficulty, we can walk confident and at peace and even be joyful because of how good you are to us, because how powerful your kingdom is, and because of the privilege that we get to be a part of your kingdom. Holy Spirit, just help us grasp that so that our lives, our families, our community, our nation can change and experience the goodness and the blessing that you want us to experience. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn your hearts toward worship? We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.